Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Good morning. Little Billy couldn't wait for Christmas. The decorations were up, the tree was shining and glittering in the corner, and underneath the tree was a big, shiny box with his name on it. Ooh, ah, right? And he had a pretty good idea of what was inside the box. You see, his parents had asked him over and over, what do you want? And he had told them, without ever straying, without any, you know, without any uh, uh, uncertainty on his part, he said every time, this is what I want. I want a remote control R2-D2. That's, and, and no matter how much they tried to ask him for more gifts than he might want, he, he was always constant. He said, this is the one thing I want. And so, suddenly, a nice shiny box was waiting for him underneath the tree. But as you know, little boys aren't especially good at waiting. And so as the days crawled by, as Christmas just seemed to never come, there happened to be one particular day when he was alone in the living room. And he said, what's the harm? What's the harm of just picking up the box and just, you know, touching it, trying to... You know, what's the harm in just shaking it just a little bit, right? Maybe a little bit. And just like that, he heard something shatter. And even though he figured it was probably that remote control R2-D2 in there, it now sounded like one piece. It was a couple of pieces. And R2-D2 was in pain and hurting. But... He knew if he told anyone, he'd get in trouble. So he, with a growing sense of dread, put the present under the tree and decided he would wait for Christmas to come. And in growing sadness, the days seemed to pass by a little bit more quickly until finally the day came around when he was allowed to open his present and sure enough, there in the box was a broken remote control R2-D2. Have you ever desperately desired something so much that you can't wait for it? That no amount of sneak peeks is enough. You have to have this one thing and you just have lost all your patience. I have to say, this is something I struggle with. There's, there have been several times where I have wanted something so, so much and something that I've been looking forward to having. And when I know I'm probably going to get it, those days of waiting just get so hard for me. I am constantly getting my Christmas presents early because I struggle with patience. I'll just be honest. I do struggle with this. And we're talking about physical things, physical blessings that really don't matter in the long run, and yet we desire them as if they could fill a hole in our hearts. 
Friends, we should never allow physical stuff to have such power. But we do sometimes, and I thought it would be a nice illustration for the sake of Moses. We're looking at the book of Exodus. We're continuing our sermon series. And we're continuing to look at Moses, this great figure who is a, a, a wonderful example for us, especially with regards to what he desired. His greatest desire, his greatest yearning seems to be that he wanted to be closer to God. He didn't have an eye for anything physical. He didn't have an eye for any of the things we might usually or tend to have an eye for. He wanted one thing and one thing alone, and he just couldn't wait for it. He wanted to see God. He wanted to be closer to God, have a relationship with Him. And that's why in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, he says to God, Please, Lord, show me your glory. Now we're going to look into this request. But before we do that, I want to get us all back on the same page. We're continuing from where we left off last week, as I promised we would. But two weeks ago, Richard took us through the story of the golden calf. Right? And uh, this was a, a story in which the Israelites committed a great sin of rebellion against God. And he was ready to destroy them for it. But in, amaz- in an amazing act of mediation, Moses convinced God not to do that. Moses spoke on behalf of the people and God relented from his destruction. And then last week we talked about the conversation that ensued after this. After after this great act of mediation came another great act of mediation. Because at the beginning of chapter 33, God tells the people, all right, I won't destroy you. You can go up to the land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses understood that there was no point in going to the promised land if God wasn't with them. The exodus was worthless and meaningless if God was not in their midst. If they didn't have the tabernacle, he says, then don't send us. That's what he tells God. And so once again, Moses convinces God to change his mind. Now, I think we all understand that we're speaking in human terms here. It's not necessarily the, the truth that, that Moses convinced God, right? In, in the sense that he... It's not like he brought up superior logic or reasoning. It's not as if he's bringing up an argument that God had never thought of before. Everybody with me on that? Instead, I believe God was waiting for Moses to, just, to become the mediator he was supposed to be. He was allowing Moses to demonstrate his faith And that's exactly what Moses did. Moses became the great mediator he was supposed to be. And because of that, as we looked at last week, God was pleased with his mediator. God was pleased with Moses. And that pleasure that he had in Moses extended outward to the rest of the people. It was by the merits of their mediator that the Israelites were saved. It was only because God was pleased with Moses that that he was ever pleased with the people, that he ever was in their midst. That's where we we were last week. And I kind of stopped mid-conversation. And I said, we're going to continue right where we left off. Well, where have we left off? God and Moses are having a conversation in the tent of meeting. God has come down in a luminous cloud. The people can see it from their tents, but they can't come anywhere nearby. Moses is speaking to God, and the text tells us face to face. It's an idiom. It's not being literal there. 
it's a turn of phrase that means he's speaking to God intimately, one-on-one. And this is the conversation. After God says, okay, I will go with you, then Moses says in verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. But hadn't they already seen God's glory up to this point? He'd been to the burning bush, caught a glimpse of it there when he saw this grand miracle, heard the voice. He had to take off his own sandals because he was standing on holy ground. And then later on in chapter 24, when he finally brought the people back to the mountain, he got to go up onto the mountain and see the very pavement that God stood on, which is quite a fascinating text. And we looked at that a few months ago, perhaps a few weeks ago. And Moses and the, and the elders got to see something that nobody else had gotten to see up to that point. He had all also been in the tent of meeting and gotten to, be a, uh, gotten to enter the cloud of God's presence. He had gotten to do that several times up on the mountain and in the tent of meeting, speaking to God face to face. And yet somehow, even though he'd been through all of these experiences, Moses knew that there was a deeper level of intimacy that he could have with God. He knew that there was something more to see. And he just couldn't wait to see it. The sneak peeks weren't enough. Moses wanted a full revelation of God. A visual display. And when he says, I want to see your glory, the word glory there means weightiness. He wanted to get the whole picture. And so he requests as much. And here's God's response. Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So in essence, this is a yes and no answer. I think we can tell from this passage that God really wants to give Moses this gift. God really wants to, to grant this request. However, there's a problem. Moses has a sin problem. Moses cannot enter into the full presence of God. And, his re- and God's reasoning for this is very simple. He says, if you were to see it all in its full glory, you would die. No man can see me and live. Therefore, God was willing to show him as much as he could bear, but Moses wouldn't get to see the whole picture. Moses wouldn't get to receive his request. He was, however, given a fleeting glimpse of God's back. Now, what does that mean? We're speaking in great mysteries here, right? Because, again, this isn't literal. We're not talking necessarily about a physical face or a physical hand or a physical back. These are physical descriptions that seem to describe spiritual realities. And we don't know what Moses would have seen on the mountain. But they're described to us in this way. And I think the, the meaning we can take from it is that the face 
is a direct revelation of God's greatness, right? The full picture. Whereas the back would be something like the after effects or something like the, uh, a lesser, some kind of lesser experience of God's glory. Let's call it the luminous contrails of God's glory as he passes by. This is what Moses gets to experience. He, however, does not get to see his face. And we don't know what, you know, we can't picture it. We don't know what to picture when we think of God's face. We don't know what to picture when we think of God's hand covering Moses. The description itself is baffling. You know, maybe the image that comes to mind is God is some giant on the mountain, right? But this is an imperfect understanding. And, and, but I think, obviously, that's generally the picture that comes to mind. When God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand over Moses, we might picture a hand. That's about the best we can do, right? This is a very difficult to picture passage. But let's read what happens. In chapter 34, verses 1 through 4, we see God is told to make certain preparations. He's told to carve out the two stone tablets or two replacement tablets for the Ten Commandments. God had been the one to previously craft the tablets himself. And now Moses is told, bring your own tablets. I find that kind of interesting. Uh, But he's told, bring those up, come to the mountain in the morning, and that's what Moses does. And then in verse 5, we see this actual event take place. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. So from there, the covenant is re-established. The covenant that had been shattered by the people is rebuilt and reformed. It's almost like a parent feeling sorry for little Billy who shattered his present and then going out and buying another one. Okay? God has decided in this moment that he is going to renew the covenant. But, but instead of going into all of that, I want us to pause and just focus in on this description that God gives himself. Because God is not really revealed to Moses by his appearance. And that's certainly not how he's revealed to us. Right? We don't know what to picture. However, we are told what God said. And we, in essence, can hear the voice of God just as Moses did. And what God says is this amazing sevenfold description of his own character, of his own nature. And 
it's through this description that we can have a great and wonderful understanding of who God is, of who the God of the Exodus is, and who the God of our life is. So let's look at this sevenfold description together. It is one of the most important passages in the Bible. You can tell that by just how often it's quoted in the Old Testament. David talked about this a lot. He said, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's in Psalm 86, verse 15, Psalm 103, verse 8, and Psalm 145, verse 8. The prophet Joel said, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jonah complained to God that this was his character. When Nineveh repented and God forgave them, Jonah turned to God in chapter 4, verse 2, and said, I knew this would happen. He said, I knew that you were a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, Jonah wasn't happy about it, but he knew the description. Why? Because this, in essence, became the, the definition of God for the Israelites and for the Jews moving forward. I was talking to Richard, who's out of town. I was talking to him on the phone, and he said he loves this passage because it's, I think it's the longest self-disclosure that God gives in the Old Testament. And, and I think that's really cool. That, and because, of, because it's this self-disclosure by God, it's God describing himself, the people of God, the Israelites and the Jews, they took that and moved forward with it. If the Jews were ever asked about their God, this was the description they gave. So it's a description. So let's look over each of these seven attributes one by one. God is, first of all, compassionate. This is another word for sympathy. In other words, God cares situation, weaknesses. He's sympathetic to us. When we are hurting, His heart is drawn to help us. The Bible says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Psalm 103, verse 13. And that description really hits close to home for me as a new father. Uh, you might know uh, that Luke has been sick this last week. It's not been fun. Uh, he had, we had to go to the doctor. We, had to give him, uh, we have to give him antibiotics. And he thinks that's just plain torture. So it's really hard to make him eat it. It's really hard to... It, it, it's hard for me. I'm sure it's hard for Carissa to just hold his little arms down and make him take the medicine, Right? It, it, it pains me to do that. It's my, I know it's, I'm a new father. First experience. I'm sure after kids two and three and four and five. Who knows? Uh, but I'm sure after the next kids it won't be so hard. But this is my first time really experiencing my son being sick. And I've got to say, I don't like it. It is not fun because he's my son. I have compassion for him. If he has a problem, I want to fix it. And I think that as a father... I've come to understand the love of God just a little bit more than I had before. That the love of a father is the love that God has for us, only even more so. And this is what the psalmist says. He says, as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion for us. He is compassionate because he is our father. He's drawn to help us rather than punish Secondly, God is gracious. God is gracious. This word means undeserved favor. 
Sometimes people say, you know, I want to get what I deserve. Well, if we all got what we deserve, we wouldn't be too happy about it, would we? We'd be, pe- we'd be perishing in our sins if we got what we deserve. But I, I read a story, a funny story about a woman who had gone to a photographer with her friend. And in order to take this picture, she had gone to the beauty parlor first. She had, you know, done her makeup, done her hair, had the nicest outfit on that she could possibly get. And she sat down in front of the photographer. And as he was setting up the lights, she said to him, just as a joke, make sure to do me justice. To which her friend automatically, with a twinkle in her eye, responded by saying, Oh dear, what you need is not justice, but mercy. Okay. (laughs) And this is what we need. We need mercy. We need grace. Not just in front of a camera lens, but in front of the Almighty God. We need to be treated better than we deserve. And that's what grace is. It's undeserved favor given by God. Thirdly, we're told that God is slow to anger. Older translations say the word long-suffering. And I love that word because it doesn't really bring a picture to your mind. God suffers with us for a long time. He is patient. He is slow to anger. Yes, God does get angry. But He is not inclined to it. He is not volatile. Instead, he is slow to anger. John McKay explains it well. He said, Slow to anger does not present the Lord as a frustrated deity who, who, excuse me, who loses patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It acknowledges, rather, that the Lord is reluctant to act against his creation, even when his creation is acting in rebellion against him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance. He is not forgetful and will not condone sin. At a time of his choosing, he will act decisively against it. And I'm reminded of what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, when there were skeptics talking about, why has God not come back? Have you ever been asked that question? Right? You're a Christian. It's been 2,000 years. Why hasn't Jesus come back? You ever been asked that? Well, Peter gives an answer. He says, the answer is because God is not acting slowly, as some regard slowness, Instead, he is being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. So that should be a comfort to us. God has not come back yet because he's being patient with us. He is long-suffering. He wants to save everyone. He is long-suffering. And boy, don't we see that long-suffering in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Numbers, when we watch these people, this obstinate people, sin over and over again. And what does God do? He suffers with them. God is slow to anger. And doesn't, before we get on our high horse and look down our noses on the Israelites, isn't he slow to anger with us too? Numbers 4 and 5 are grouped together. God is This compassionate, gracious, slow to anger God is also abounding in love and truth or loving kindness and faithfulness. There are a few renditions or a few translations we could use. Uh, But the idea here, especially this idea of loving kindness, it's it's a big word in the Old Testament. And it's talking about God's commitment to his covenant. And the same is true here of the word truthfulness or faithfulness. Here's the idea that I believe is being presented. 
We already saw that God's like a father. Now we're seeing that God is like a husband. The, the covenant that God gave from Mount Sinai, as we've talked about, was very similar to a marriage contract under Jewish law. And in essence, the people of Israel were the bride of God. He was the husband. And he is a faithful and truthful husband. He is faithful to the covenant, never betraying us, never betraying the relationship. He is always there. If anyone's going to break the covenant, it's not going to be him, right? He is a faithful husband, sincere, truthful. We can trust him. These are all the ideas that I believe are being presented. And uh, verse 7 repeats this idea, this word loving kindness, uh, which talks again about covenantal love. And it says that he extends it to thousands. And I believe this is a reference back to the second commandment, where it says in Exodus 20, verse 6, that uh, God extends love to a thousand generations of those who keep his commandments. I think that's what it's referencing back to, the thousands of generations. In other words, God's love, it's, it's expansive. It goes on and on. It, it never ends. It is truly an amazing ocean, right, without any, without any bottom. Okay? So that's the idea there. Number six, we're told that God is forgiving. The Hebrew, Hebrew word here, nasa, means to lift or to carry. And that's the idea of what God does to our sin. He picks it up. He takes the burden of weight off of our shoulders and casts it away. That's what he does when he forgives. And it, the text is specific. It says he forgives three specific things. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And those are actually three distinctions here. Wickedness uh, is... It, Basically means, it's the word hawan, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, just so you know. Uh, it's sometimes translated iniquity, and this is the idea of turning aside from what is right or good. And then you have the word rebellion, which is more personal in nature. Not only is someone breaking the rules, but they are breaking the relationship between themselves and the covenantal king. They are turning away from him in an act of willful rebellion. And then sin is, is a more general catch-all term, uh, obviously, for, for what is wrong, for sin. And the idea here is that God is saying, I will forgive all kinds of sin. I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He's, he's casting out a wide net. In essence... He's showing us just how forgiving He is. Because we may feel like our sin is, just, is particularly worse than other people's sin. God may be willing, able to forgive other people, but He can't forgive me. We may be tempted to think that. But God says, I forgive all kinds of sin. Even your kind of sin. And I think that that's an important note that, that should give us a lot of comfort here. So, here are these great, wonderful descriptions given to us about God. This is the God who passed by Moses on the mountain, who passed by in his glory. This is the God whom Moses immediately fell down and worshipped. This is the God who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. And it's a good thing, too, because no other God could do this or would do this. The Israelites needed a God of compassion, who would hear their cry when they were under the yoke of slavery, who would hear their cry when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. 
They needed a God who was gracious, who would treat these people better than they deserved. And that's exactly what God did. He brought them out of slavery. He gave them treasure as they left. He gave, he gave them food. He gave them water. He, he gave them his law. What did they, what had they done to merit any of that? Nothing. God was gracious toward them. The people certainly needed a God who was slow to anger, did they not? Remember the context, they had just worshipped a golden calf only a few days before, and now God is renewing that covenant. Why? Because he is slow to anger, and he is forgiving. He's a forgiving God. And he is abounding in love and truth. And even when we break the covenant, even when the people broke the covenant, God is faithful. So the Israelites needed this God. They needed the God who is now proclaiming his own nature before Moses. So when God passed by on the mountain and spoke these words, he was revealing in word what he had already demonstrated by act, by deed. And, and so it's this, wonderful, it's this wonderful thing where we might be tempted to stop there. We might be tempted to, to pause and say, isn't God wonderful? These are amazing blessings. These are amazing attributes of His character. But that's, this isn't where God stops. He doesn't end by saying, and I am forgiving, and then go on to, to renew the covenant. He reminds Moses, and He reminds all of us, that these descriptions, while wonderful, are not the full picture. We must understand that God is also just. God says here, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. He says, I punish the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And I believe this is another echo to the second commandment, which Richard talked about in this very statement. It's a statement that can be pretty uncomfortable for us, but I think it's being used in a very specific way in this verse. I think he's specifically referencing the second commandment. He does it twice here. First, which I already already mentioned, he talks about God's love, which extends to the thousandth generation. And then he says his anger or his punishment, which extends to the third and fourth generation. Do you see the difference? Right? The idea I think we should be gaining from that is that God's love extends further, in essence. That he is more inclined to love than he is to punish. But that doesn't mean he won't punish. We cannot stop at love and grace and leave it at that. We have to, I I should say, our definition of God is incomplete if it does not also take into account his justice. But how can we reconcile God's justice with His grace? God's justice with His forgiveness, right? Do you see the conflict there? The people of Israel had rebelled against God. They did not deserve to have this shattered covenant renewed. Justice demanded that they be destroyed. And yet God doesn't. God renews the covenant. How is that just? God is a just God. They were supposed to be punished. This is like you know the parents of Billy going out 
and buying a new toy, even though it's his own fault, it broke. It's not just. Moses, for all of his great characteristics, was a flawed individual. And he had no business speaking to God face to face, and he had no business asking God to see, to witness, to gaze upon his glory. Because he was a sinful man. And yet God, here we see in the passage, is doing everything he can to allow Moses a fleeting glimpse. And notice in that story what God does. And I'm speaking in human terms here, so bear with me. God finds a loophole, in essence. Moses can't see God. He can't be near God because he is sinful. He can't be in God's presence. God says, okay, I will protect you. I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will put my hand over you so that I can pass by and you can see my back. God is finding a way in which Moses can see some of God's glory. And I want us to understand just how provocative this story is. Because God is saving Moses from God. You ever realize that? Isn't that what salvation is all about? God is saving us in salvation from himself. From his own glory, his own wrath. You know, we often think about being put under the hand of God as a comforting uh, picture, like in in the trials of life, he, he holds us in his hand. And that is used some of the time in Isaiah 51, for instance. However, in this account, the hand over Moses is, is, protecting God, is protecting Moses from God. Isn't that provocative? Well, this is where it all comes down. It can be all very confusing. But God worked out all of this issue, all of these issues on the cross. God worked out his justice He made sure that his justice was pleased by the cross and he made sure his forgiveness was demonstrated in the cross. And all of this uh, we see in the book of Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. There's a lot in in that whole section of verses 21 through 26. I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, We don't have time to just dive into every little thing. We're going to focus in on one word. And that's this word propitiation. Okay, let me read the passage here. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what's being said there? Okay, there's a lot being said. One of the things that I want us to notice is that there seems to me, and maybe, again, I'm speaking in human terms, but it seems to me that there was an issue that God's justice had not been truly given and dealt out among the people. He had passed over the sins previously. And therefore, he had not truly 
been just. Now, I don't, I don't mean to say that God is not just. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand. Uh, but I do mean to, I do want to draw emphasis on the fact that it's the moment on the cross that not only shows and demonstrates God's amazing grace, it also shows and demonstrates God's justice and is the fulfillment of God's justice. And that all comes up in the word propitiation here. The Greek word is hilasterion. It's used several times in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in a second. But this is a big word, propitiation. We need to understand what it means. I've got to say, any time this word was brought up when I was a kid, it went, one ear, it went in one ear and out the other. Okay? I just could never remember. I could never hold on to the definition. So let, let me tell you what propitiation means. Propitiation is a big word that means satisfaction. It means that because God is a holy God, his anger and justice burns against sin. And that punishment, that anger, that wrath needs satisfied. And it's only satisfied if a proper punishment is given. So what's the solution? Because God knows we deserve hell, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to give us that. So the solution he comes up with is Jesus Christ. The solution is that he gives himself as his own sacrifice. And he gives Jesus as a propitiation or a satisfactory replacement on our behalf. Propitiation, if you see that word, basically you need to draw to mind this idea that God is appeasing his own wrath through Christ. Now this word, Elasterion, it was used several times in the Old Testament. Uh, I should say the Old Testament translation into Greek, uh, which is called the Septuagint. If you're, if, you're not, uh, if you're not sure that we should be looking to the Septuagint uh, for, for good answers and for, uh, let's say, good information, I just want to mention that the apostles and, and, and Jesus, they quoted the Septuagint. They thought of it as a proper translation of scripture. And because of the Septuagint, the word hilasterion came to mean a lot of things for the people. In other words, when Paul in Romans uses this word, hilasterion, it's a word that the people were familiar with. Because they had read it in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. They had read this term used about the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat. We've talked about that before. right? But the lid to the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the Septuagint is called Hilasterion, the mercy seat. And it came to bring... So when, when, a, when a reader read that word, they were thinking of the great day of atonement, when the high priest would enter the tabernacle and sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat. And that moment was a great moment of propitiation every year, and now it's being brought forward and being used for Christ. Okay? So my point in all of this is, is just so we understand that Christ is the fulfillment of the Exodus itself, of tabernacle sacrifice itself. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. And he's the fulfillment of all of these descriptions and these attributes of God's character. It is through Christ that these attributes reach their fullest expression. We see God's compassion through Christ. His grace, of course, is only given to us because of Christ's blood. 
Jesus was slow to anger with his disciples, with his apostles, and the fact that he's willing to give, the, the Father was willing to give his Son shows us just how slow to anger he, he truly is. His, his loving kindness, of course, his truthfulness, his forgiveness, all of it is manifested in Christ, and so is God's justice. Because when Christ died, when Christ took that punishment, it satisfied God's wrath. How wonderful it is that we can see this description God gave of himself, that we can see all of them manifested in the Son, Jesus Christ. Moses wanted to see God face to face. He wanted to see God's face. Well, guess what? People in the first century got to see God's face when they met Jesus. They got to see this full expression, this full culmination of all of these descriptions God had given. And we might be tempted to feel sorry for Moses that he never got what he was requesting. Obviously, I believe when he died, he, he, uh, he went on to be with the Lord uh, and he will receive his full gift of the resurrection. I do believe that. But even, even if we disregard for that for a moment, in his life, we always think of the end of Moses' life as kind of a sad story, right? He didn't even get to enter the promised land. And in, in this case, he didn't get to see God's face, what he truly desired. Well, then we move many, many years later, the story of the transfiguration. In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, let me just read this passage for a moment. We might notice, or we should notice, several similarities to the story we just read. Similarities that can't go unnoticed. It says, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as, they were, as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. I love this story for many reasons. But one of the things I, that kind of blew my mind this last week in preparing the lesson is that Moses actually did get to see the promised land. On this mountain, in the promised land, here's Moses. And not only that, even more beautiful, even more special for Moses, is that he's getting to see God face to face. He's getting to speak to Christ, to Jesus. And what is Jesus talking with him about? He's talking with him about his death, which is about to take place in Jerusalem. So Jesus is giving Moses 
he's, he's showing Moses really the full culmination of what the Exodus was all about. All that work Moses went through, God is, uh, God is now sh- showing Moses it was all worthwhile. I, I find that beautiful. I think it's incredible. And of course, there are some amazing similarities between the two accounts. There's the cloud coming down on top of a mountain. We, I think that we're supposed to notice these similarities. And I, and I just find it so incredible and so wonderful that God in that moment gives Moses what he so desperately desired. It may have come in a form that Moses did not expect. But Jesus was the answer to his request. And he's the answer to ours as well. There's so much more to this story. So much more we could talk about. But for now, as we draw to a close, I want to say this. God wants to be close to you. God desires to be in your presence and for you to be in his. And yet there's a sin problem getting in the way. There's a problem. No one can see God and live. And God is just. And that justice demands that He punish our sin. But God found a way. He gave His Son to be a propitiation. To take that punishment for us. Because of that, we have an amazing opportunity. If you're here this morning and you are not a member of the church, if you are not a part of his body, if you are not in covenantal relationship with him, if you have not been baptized into him and covered yourself with him, I hope and pray you will make that decision today. Please come as together we stand and sing.